0: Bright blazing intuitions may go rushing through a man's mind, swifter and more terrible than lightning, flashing over a landscape that seems clear in every detail. Then they go out, and there is only a greater blackness. I am very excited to talk about the book we're going to be discussing today. This is John Cribs, and Chris funderberg I want to know immediately your impressions of this book, which you told me you were not prepared for.
1: Uh... This book is genuinely one of the weirdest reading experiences you will ever have. I will say, my initial reaction is that it's really unfair to this book that we read Boxman right before it, because it does a <laughs> lot of similar things to Boxman, only Boxman does them great. Um, I I will say this: when I finished this book the first thought I had was this is possibly the worst book I have ever read. Everything that can be wrong with the book is wrong with that book. Right.
0: Interesting. Yeah. It's, Mm
1: -hmm. it's complete top to bottom nonsense. If you take any of the solution to the like mystery and story at face value. Right. So when you get to the end, you're like, oh, that's so fucking stupid. This book is so fucking stupid, right? But this is a book that is well worth reading and that I would recommend everyone read. I sort of understand it has like a cult status and I absolutely understand that. But what I was thinking is what, what can I even compare this book to? And we do a pairings and dessert pairings with these and we should jump right into them. And uh, when I, as I was sort of thinking of kind of my aperitif pairings to put with it, what, what is this thing like? And it's not my aperitif pairing, but this, this book is like, you can't compare it to other books. It's like a novelty album or something. It's like, it's like the shags, right? Where my pal Footfoot Foot just transcends <laughs> traditional judgment. Like you don't, you don't even know what you're looking at. It's, you don't even know what, what, the author was thinking you don't know how you're supposed to be receiving it you kind of put it down and you and you don't know what happened you just don't know what you've been put through in any way right um
0: i think that's a great comparison novelty album that's really good
1: yeah just something that's like why why did that happen to me as an audience <laughs> yeah. you know
0: um because i'm so glad you had that yeah
1: yeah, and it's, it's, again, the Boxman comparison is funny because every book this tries to play is the same stuff we were just talking about on the Boxman episode. But Boxman is made by a great artist and does everything this book tries to do 10,000 times better. Somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 times better, right? So it's not fair to set them right next to each other. It was a total accident when we were coming up with the schedule. I don't think we planned out comparing Boxman to this book.
0: And this book that we are talking about, I should mention, is called The Red Right Hand, and it's written by Joel Townsley Rogers.
1: Yes, yes. Um, but this book is still, this this book is quite a thing, is how I would describe it. Is this Quite a thing. This book is quite a thing. And I, let's just do the aperitifs, and then I have a few questions for you, right? Cool,
0: let's do it. Yeah, what do you got?
1: My aperitif pairing is... This book gets described as stream of consciousness writing or interior monologue writing a lot of the time.
0: I'm you're uh, going to pick my dessert, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> I'm just saying this book is, you should read William Faulkner's as ah. I lay dying.
0: Is that your dessert parent? It certainly was. Although I was going to go with intruder in the dust. Um, oh, wow. It's okay. I got to, I got to back I, got a backup. I, got I a backup.
1: picked a very similar one for my dessert, although not another Faulkner, um, <laughs> This book gets compared to As I Lay Dying a lot for some reason. Um, I think if you read As I Lay Dying before this, As I Lay Dying is a really slog of a read, famously. It's a really tough read. and But you can see what exquisite writing is, right? And I think if you have that baseline to for what exquisite writing actually is, it will prevent you from sort of being this is a frustrated
0: by the narrative
1: i would say this book when i call it a cult novel it's more like this book was written by a cult leader and you don't want to be seduced by its rhythms and fall into its traps in some way you don't want to be fooled into thinking this book is a masterpiece just because it's insane right you don't want to this is this is a book you don't want to like here's a false prophet, you know, Joel Townsley Rogers, you know, this is see what actual great writing looks right. Like so you sort of don't get taken in by this, this, you know, uh, uh, Scientology-esque, you know, L. Ron Hubbard-esque figure of a book in some Hold on, way.
0: hold on, Joel Townsley Rogers. That's actually an anagram for a charismatic cult leader. I just realized
1: it. Oh my God. That is a joke. One of my jokes in the notes is uh, that this book enters into, you know, uh, to topsy-topsy-crets territory (laughs) in a way that is, uh, you know, quite, just quite shocking that it goes there. This book, we'll get into it, but this book is kind of, it's quite shocking in how We'll get into it. We'll get into it. It's such a big conversation.
0: I know it's so it's such a hard book to get into and like not jump ahead to, yes. you know, the other things so that you're kind of talking about it. And if you've read it, then you understand. But people just I, I also should say that the, just the top of this episode, you know, we never give spoiler warnings. We just kind of assume why would anyone want to listen to two dudes talk about a book they haven't read, at least yeah. it's my mentality. But I will at the top of this just say. If you're listening to this without having read the red right, the red right hand, please stop listening to this and read the red right, uh, right hand immediately. <laughs> because
1: it because it's nothing except its relationships to twists and creating of twists in the generation of red herrings and clues. Right. It's it's nothing except that.
0: Exactly. Right? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that. Um. My imperative, just so we can get into this thing. I you know, kind of uh, figured he must have been influenced in some way when we get into the plot of this movie by the vanishing hitchhiker, right? The classic American myth, uh, myth yeah. about the, the, the hitchhiker who gets into the car and asks to be driven home. And when they get to the house, they've disappeared. And it turns out they're a ghost, right? That they've been gone yeah. for a long time. There's a lot of phantom supernatural hitchhiker kind of business at the beginning of this novel. And so I went back and I actually looked at the uh, Vanishing Hitchhiker, the old myth. And indeed, the second iteration of the myth, interestingly enough, I'm just going to jump ahead here. One of the characters in Red Right Hand is uh, said to be from Spartersburg, Pennsylvania, which you're immediately like, that's not a real town in Pennsylvania. You're just immediately like, what is the Spartersburg thing supposed to be? So the second iteration of the Vanishing Hitchhiker story, which comes out of South Carolina from the 1930s, the traveling man comes from Spartanburg, in South Carolina, and I don't know, it seems to me like that must be some kind of a specific reference. This book, uh, Red Right Hand, was written in the 40s, so it wouldn't surprise me if he heard this specific iteration of the myth from coming from South Carolina and decided that Spartanburg, Spartersburg, uh, there's also, that iteration also has a lot of interesting weird coincidences, like when the hitchhiker gets into the car, she says, uh, I'm going to my brother's house, and the driver says, oh, I know that guy. He knows the brother. So just, you know, these coincidences that just pop up left and right inside the book to kind of drive you mad. And there's something of like a sort of American folk mystery sort of vibe going on for a lot of this book. And yeah. I feel like he definitely kind of took a few hints from those. So the vanishing hitchhiker myth and everything kind of around it I think would be my my pick to start.
1: Yes, and I also should say just to context as I lay dying is is about it's a 1930 novel, very very famous. It's about uh a is she a matriarch. She's just the oldest member of a the family. There's a grandmother who's dying and the family is all going to transport her back to her hometown in Mississippi. I believe it's Jefferson, Mississippi. And that's all the book is, is like the travails of getting this, this woman's dead body. She's, she's alive at the beginning, first couple chapters, maybe just the first chapter. And then they are going to transport her corpse uh, in the coffin down to her hometown in, in Jefferson, Mississippi. And it jumps around in the heads of various different characters. It's so a lot like uh, the first
0: vacation movie in that respect.
1: it is he's he's a pulpier writer than he gets credit for especially that's one of his earlier novels I think it's like his fifth novel and his first three or four novels certainly two or three novels are just straight southern gothic stories about like you know weird matriarchs and is it a ghost and incest and stuff they're also very in the vein of the vanishing Stranger you know, they're, they're in that same Southern Gothic tone. So that's when you said that I wanted to connect Faulkner to that a little more heavily as well, that this, this book, although it's all takes place in New England and, and upstate New York uh, is, is very Southern Gothic flavored in some way, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And your pick of Faulkner is better than mine. I kind of picked intruding the dust because it's the closest to a murder mystery that Faulkner ever wrote. Yeah. Although that's kind of dismissive of the, you know, kind of social drama he wanted to convey in that book. But yeah, I think dust is a better comparison in terms of just the, the, the hill that you have to climb, I think, as you're reading it, as you know, the, the task as a reader that you're kind of asked by Faulkner to, to take on when you open the, that book.
1: Um, so my question for you is, how, how did you come across this book? I think you read it at TIFF one year, the Toronto International Film Festival. For those of you who don't know, at film festivals, there's a lot of downtime. You're sort of waiting in line to get into movies, sitting and waiting for movies to start, waiting to, at restaurants to be served. Uh, just, you you have a lot of downtime. So it's always good to bring two or three books with you for a film festival, because you'll you'll burn through books pretty quickly in the course of a week at a film festival.
0: Um, is Especially that- if you want to avoid any social interaction whatsoever With people online Which I'm an asshole like that So I always you know, pack a bag of books to bring up with me And this is yeah. one of the ones that I threw in there I, Yeah, uh, you're right
1: I will say at Sundance I read more than I ever read at TIFF Just <laughs> hiding from trying to talk to those people Anyway
0: It's a recommendation by Westlake actually He's a big fan of it He's always said he feels like this book Should be reissued every 10 years or so uh, and that's the only place I had heard of it at the time. This is a few years ago now. It's sort of had a great second life recently with a new edition, uh, with an introduction by Joe Lansdale. But at the time, I had never heard of it until it was on a list of books by Donald Westlake as something that you should read. And even with that recommendation, because he a lot of his other stuff that he recommended is just kind of straight up crime fiction, I was pretty blown away by what I found when I opened it.
1: Yeah, Donald Westlake is obviously the author of the Parker series, who wrote that under a pseudonym, Richard Stark, and a great, uh, great one of the great crime novelists of all time and a Pink Smoke favorite. So if he's recommending something, I would be interested. Like you, I'd never, I'd never heard of this until a while ago, like maybe a year and a half ago. You were like, uh, uh, "This book I read at Tiff, we should do it at on the podcast." And I was like, "Okay." And you're right, it did start. Popping up everywhere, and now you see it on people's lists of their favorite uh, crime novels. You know, sort of blogger types when they're asked to list their favorite crime novels, it regularly pops up in it. Which I've got to say, is insanity. I feel like it's an insult to other novels to to put this in this uh, that category because the, to describe this novel, it's very it's very very hard to describe this novel um like boxman it at the beginning it has like <sighs> strange sort of aside's like detective interrogation things it cuts to sort of recollections descriptions of what's going on in the early chapters it, it's almost like Alan Robegrier's novels where it's this incessant describing of like the room he's in, but like sitting on the desk is an inkwell and my pencil is sitting here and the desk is made of wood and just an incredibly over-detailed description of a physical space to, to a point of sort of insipidness, especially in the early going. He loses it later on, uh, but the first 20 pages I, I, or so, I would say you're just reading descriptions of physical spaces to an absurd degree um
0: and i love that he does that as a way to play with geography that's going to be really important later on where important is a,
1: anything important in this book
0: it's important because <laughs> if you're if you're going to take the whole thing you know as something that you're supposed to kind of untangle because in detailing the minutia of this book and the small things like the desk in the room and things like that, you kind of forget and and obsessing over the different area that they're in in uh, Connecticut, you kind of miss you know when you when you're going back over things. Oh yeah, this is here and that's there because the biggest mystery of the book, of course, is if this murderer driving this car went down this road and there's no way he could not see him. Why didn't he see him? Things like that kind of you know get answered by it. but. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. It's so yeah. hard to get in. in I'm, I'm just going to say, geography and time in this book are the biggest things that he plays with. And so we are given flash forwards and then flashbacks and things like that. It's a really m- masterful kind of manipulation of, of the narrative. In that I way. think it's
1: masterless. That's, okay. that's one of my big things about this book is I think this is a very interesting book, but it reads to me like a first draft and collections of notes there are no chapters uh, no chapter titles random dialogue exchanges if you've ever tried to write a novel you know this is what your notes before they're turned into a book look like it looks <laughs> like he handed this in without working on it is what it feels like in a lot of <laughs> ways uh to me but so i would say that this book too we know everything immediately, right? That this is the setup is there's a young couple who are going up to Vermont to get married, 1945, because there's no waiting period in Vermont. On the way, they pick up a hitchhiking tramp. They stop by a lake. At the lake, the uh, tramp is peeping on them. And the man, the husband, the bridegroom, chases after the tramp, attempts to kill him, gets killed himself, The tramp then tries to hunt down the woman who hides in the woods and gets away. The tramp takes the body of the dead bridegroom in the car, drives up this very road that I was standing on, so surely they must have passed me, right? And goes away with the dead guy in the car beside him who is, for some reason, missing his right hand, right?
0: Right, and parallel to that, Dr. Henry Riddle, our narrator... Yes, is up in Vermont uh, with a patient who passes away. He's a brain surgeon. Yeah. The man dies under his knife. And he's driving back down to New York. So sort of in the complete reversal. And he is in Connecticut only because his car broke down, the car that he uh, borrowed, that he's supposed to take back to New York and get in touch with this uh, this garage man to return it. Breaks down. He's cranking it for uh, you know a couple hours on this road. That's trying how he gets involved with everything. He tries. So that's to why he's there.
1: Yeah, he's standing there on the road. The car should have gone by me. The guy writing this novel, sitting at this desk, which has several pencils on a sheet of paper, and on the sheet of paper, scrawled in hand, the and that's it. And it's him. This guy who was standing there and should have seen the car drive by, right? He didn't see it drive by, and he's trying to put the mystery together of what happened. While the police are hunting down this red-faced, red-eyed, red-haired, diabolical tramp, right?
0: The sawed-off man, the ragged man. Corks. The grinning screw. dirty old man with the matted auburn hair and the voice so strangely like my own, wearing a lavet blue felt hat with the brim cut away and saw two scallops all around.
1: But I would say that we find out what I've just described virtually instantaneously like within the first three pages. And then we get like 100 pages in, maybe like 90 pages actually. And we don't know anything more than what we learned at the very start. It doesn't move. And this book has an insanely repetitive style that I'm going to read you a page from this book now because otherwise you can't understand what this book is like. And so he starts out talking about the woman right? Who escaped from the tramp, the bride to be. And he says, a little nearsighted. She was probably damned myopic. I am Dr. Riddle, I said. Dr. Harry Riddle of New York. You say your car has been stolen and your fiance kidnapped? Was it a gray Cadillac Phaeton with red upholstery and a license plate XL something? Yes, he said. That was it. You noticed it as it went past Yes, was your fiance named Ennis St. Ermy? I said, a black-eyed man, rather tall with black hair and a black mustache and a gray grabber suit and Panama hat? Yes, she told me. Do you know Ennis? I am Eleanor Derriere. We are on our way to Vermont to be married. How did you know who I was? We picked up this hitchhiker outside of Danbury, the most horrible looking little man you can imagine. Yes, a tramp with little red eyes and a long matted auburn hair, I said, with sharp pointed teeth and a torn left ear, about five, three, five, five, feet three inches high dressed in a check black and white sport coat green shirt and light blue felt hat with the brim cut away and scallops all around yes that was the man she said do you know him what did he do to Ennis please tell me where's Ennis now I don't know I haven't seen him he wasn't in the car when he passed you that must mean that there is nothing new in that page that is all stuff we know already and it's this insipid style a black eyed man rather tall with black hair and black mustache and a gray gabardine scene suit and a panama hat you you almost i am dr riddle i am dr harry riddle of new york you you almost can't believe the writing is this punishing this, this is like if you were talking to someone with brain damage this is what the conversation would be like you know, you would be like, Are you smelling burned toast? Do we need to get you to a hospital? If anybody spoke to you the way this book is written, you you would think there's like they're brain damaged. You would think there's something wrong with this person, right? Yes. It's 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 an anti style. It's I don't even know what it's trying to accomplish in any way. Except that this book comes from the era. Of of In the intro, Joe Lansdale calls them clue-on-clue mystery novels, right? And it's just trying to set up a scenario and then load it up with clues and red herrings, right? So it's this really repetitive style to emphasize this incredible smorgasbord of red herrings that is throughout this book, right?
0: Right. The best. Uh, yeah. Uh, a good example of being the fact that he finds as he's seeing, you know, evidence that the the corkscrew has been you know, down the road, even though he didn't see him, he's finding all this evidence that he's been there. He finds this hat, this blue hat that corkscrew was supposedly wearing and says, I once had a hat like that and picks it up and looks at his initials were inside because it is his hat that as far as he knows, should be back in New York. He doesn't remember ever getting rid of it. And now somehow it's on this road in, you know, the middle of the Berkshires and he has no idea where it came from. That kind of weird out there affirmia in this book, I think, is masterful in that it is so weirdly misleading because you don't know at any given point if it's going to turn supernatural. I mean, I've heard it, you know, compared to Lovecraft by some people. Because it, he throws out all this weird stuff about molds and phantasms and eyeless houses and red snake, red-eyed rattlesnakes and dipsomania that you're just like, wow, what is this information supposed to mean? And you're right in that it doesn't mean anything. And when it gets to the end, which, again, I hate having to keep saying, you know, about talk about the end because I think the end doesn't matter. And the end is kind of a huge joke, especially when you're talking about clue-on-clue mysteries like the popular Christie novels and things like that. To me, when he gives an answer at the end, which is this completely overloaded, insane thing, and insanely specific thing, I I feel like, oh, this is almost like a parody of the the murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is also a first-person narrative by a doctor who did it. You know, that's the big thing. The doctor, the narrator, is an unreliable narrator, and he's the one who did it. And obviously, the huge red herring of this book is you're supposed to think the whole time the doctor, even though it is impossible, physically impossible... If he is just now getting to Connecticut and was not around during these events, he somehow did it. And then there must be some kind of surreal, supernatural explanation to everything.
1: Well, it's, it's this accumulation of improbable coincidences. The doctor lives in the same building across the street from the woman, from the bride whose husband is murdered. And there's a peeping Tom in that building who's been watching her, but it's not him because his, his, his apartment is on the other side of the building complex and he tears his own ear, right? With the crankshaft, somehow the, the, the crank comes up and tears his earlobe. And the one of the only defining characteristics of this tramp is that he has a torn ear. Uh, he, the doctor that is, he's going to do surgery on this very rich old man, John Buchanan, right? and John Buchanan dies during surgery, the couple is on their way up to Vermont to go to John Buchanan's house to have their wedding there because John Buchanan's a family friend of the rich in his St. Ermy, right? And so they're going to have their wedding there and then stay in John Buchanan's uh, f- of, like, cabin for their, uh, for their honeymoon. Um, he finds, like you said, his hat on the roadside. There's an accumulation of all of these incredible coincidences yeah. to a point where it's pointing you towards exactly what you're saying. The old Macomero, Renault, is that how you say his name?
0: Macomero, yeah, that's how I've been
1: saying Old Adam Macomero, the doctor, the old criminal psychologist who he finds uh, tending to his garden after his car breaks down, he walks. Our main character, Doc, who's not to be confused with Doc, which is another nickname for the tramp or corkscrew. He's called corkscrew or Doc, or this criminal psychologist who is also named Doc. Our main character is Doctor Harry Riddle, who's also called Doc. Right? So all of these, like, what are you talking about? This guy the uh, the old Macomero has written a book on criminal, famous criminal cases. And one of them is called the Jekyll Hyde MD, right? That sticks out in Doc's mind. And at one point, a police officer says to him, you say your name is Riddle? Are you sure it's not Ritter? Why young man Ritter came from this very town and he hacked up his entire family, all seven of them with an ax. Are you sure you're not related to them? And it's <laughs> these, the coincidences are so... Absurd that when it doesn't get to the ending that you're expecting, which is you're in the mind of an insane person, right? Which is the only way to make sense of this ludicrousness is that you're living in the mind of an insane person. When it does go there, you do feel like, well, who the fuck cares? Because this is all nonsense. You know, like this is so much nonsense that now that you're offering some other explanation for it right who the who the hell could possibly care what the quote-unquote real solution to this is and it does feel like a parody in the sense of and it's actually funny in Boxman, there's a line where he says and i don't mean there are many solutions to this question as there are can be many solutions in some cheap mystery novel right yeah yeah He's trying to say in Boxman, like, this is ambiguous, not because I've decided as the writer to give you a hundred different solutions to this and make you pick, not a hundred, but give you five different solutions and make you pick one and see if you're right. Boxman does not want to do that. That's really what this book is doing. Although it's sort of narrowed down between (laughs) the real story of what's happening, the crazy doctor, or this left field made up insane thing.
0: But that doesn't necessarily... But even though he resolves it and has a specific solution for every clue that he's left, you're still not sure you're not in the mind of an insane man. I think that's what's brilliant about it is that the ending is so fucking insane. The answer to it all is so convoluted and crazy. Only an insane man could think it up. My favorite of the uh, coincidences, which you didn't mention, is that before St. Ermy and Eleanor, his fiance, leave New York, they go to the bank and he takes out $2,500 in 50s, right? $50, $50 bills (laughs) that he's carrying in his billfold. And uh, when he's up in Vermont attending to... um, So the bridegroom takes out
1: the $2,500 from the bank. And then Doc is up in Vermont.
0: And then Riddle's up in Vermont with old uh, John uh, Buchanan up in Burlington. And after he dies they say well we want to pay you for you know what you did he says i don't really care about the money i didn't save the patient but she hands him just this envelope full of money that he just stuffs into his pocket and doesn't look at and the entire time you don't know how much money is in there but he's constantly saying it feels like about i don't know 50 bills maybe it's 51s 50 50, they gave me $50. <laughs> That'd
1: be kind of a jerk thing to do to give me 51s. I guess it could be tens. And then at one point he looks at it and sees that there's a 50 on it, right? Mm. You know, and yeah. he's like maybe it's a 50 wrapped around 49 ones or whatever the <laughs> logic of it is. Um and so that's that's one of them, you know, and then he finds the money again, he's dropped the money at one point at one of the crime scenes and is like, oh, there's my envelope of the money I got paid by the doctor. Let me pick up my money that I dropped here and put it back in my jacket, which is my money and unrelated to the money that's now missing from the dead bridegroom that the tramp killed, right?
0: Right, right. This but is... there's everything though is put, is put out there to drive you nuts. It's put out there to drive one particular character nuts. Uh, that would be Lieutenant Rosenblatt, who's investigating. He was sent over for a completely different matter and found himself, well, you know, embroiled in this murder mystery and kidnapping mystery. And he, at one point, says every time he talks to Riddle, he's clearly exas- ex- exasperated. And he says to him, at one point, I really wish you hadn't told me that was your hat on the road. <laughs> <laughs> and he's because like, yeah, That's what my initials are in here. Because these insane coincidences are just making it impossible to come up with any kind of a solution other than dr riddle somehow is the killer (laughs) well yeah it's also what my favorite like thing to be explained
1: away is he finds the bride-to-be doc dr riddle is driving around and finds the bride-to-be after she's been hiding and when he gets out of the car she reacts like he's corkscrew like he's the killer she runs away and is like oh my god you're him right and no no book has so heavily relied on the bad eyesight of its characters as this book <laughs> which is he explains that she must be confused and hysterical because i'm obviously not the killer and i calmed her down and brought her home but john john before we get too far into this the edition of the book i have has in the back a series of discussion questions and what i would like to do is go through these questions and see just to talk about the novel. I think it would be helpful. First one is, were you able to predict any part of the solution to the case?
0: Oh yeah, I knew the whole thing. Like from page two. <laughs> It was so obvious once it's explained.
1: That's, that's a funny question because there is no way to predict the solution yes. to this case. There is no, it's suddenly conjured out of nowhere, right? And things including like and then I looked at his name in a St. Ermy. Why? That's not a name at all. In fact, it's an anagram for sinister me. And he's the left hand of this plot. Why? Who is the right hand of this plot? Why? It's a.m. Dexter, the garage man. <laughs> Wait, are they the same person? And Dexter means right and sinister means left. It's the right and left hands of these plot. They are the same person. It's like, what? How are you putting any of this? There's no way to put any of it together.
0: I love it. I, I love it so much. To me, it's like, you know, it's not just a, that it's a parody of the books from, the, from that time, but it's just a, just an insane, like extrapolation of that stuff. My favorite thing of all of that at the end is when he determines, okay, the killer was St. Ermy, but he's actually this mechanic from New York posing as the professor here in Connecticut He says, I'm not surprised I didn't hear the door open when he came in because, of course, he's a mechanic. So he would have an oil can in the bedroom to use (laughs) on the hinges so they don't creak when he comes in. That made me laugh out loud. That is just like, I, I think a lot of those books at the time and a lot of famous detective fiction and even espionage thrillers, I think like the James Bond books are based on profiling. You know, you have to say, well, I knew this about this person because they come from here or this is their job or whatever, you know. And yeah. I think that's why like a lot of them are dated very badly because you're like, well, you know, as a Chinaman, he would do this. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yikes. As
1: a baker, he would know that powdered sugar can't be used, you know, exactly. as arsenic or what the fuck
0: ever it is. Exactly. So determining that, aha, it's definitely the mechanic because he's got that oil can on him and he can <laughs> use it on the hinges to come in silently is hilarious. Like this hilarious logic at the end. And I still at the end think it's just either this guy is totally cracked up or it's, you know, who the hell knows what's really going on. But to take, you know, things that you think are important, that you've been focusing on, again, the idea of, well, you know, what am I supposed to, the the sinks and the dishes, the, the dishes in the sink, is that important somehow? The mold in the house, is that important somehow? You miss things like, well, the reason that he didn't see the car was, the car could stop at the house, and he could hide the car at the house. Obviously, <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's nothing weird or, or haunting or supernatural. It wasn't that gust of wind that went by him, or any, or the the, the specter that he saw in this. But but even road. that doesn't that
1: doesn't work because the way it's described is that the house is south of where he is, and the killer's coming from the north. That's why the killer's supposed to pass by him on the way to Swamp Road. He's between Swamp Road and where the killer is supposed to be. And then the house is further on up the road. He doesn't walk back where he came from behind the house. He walks further on up. So it doesn't make any sense. It never solves the central problem that's asked on the first page of how I didn't solve the car, right? Because he still should have seen the car if it ended up at the house that he walked to. It doesn't make any sense. It never has a solution to a mystery mattered less and been more nonsensical than this solution to a point exactly what you're saying, where I was waiting. I thought this was going to be a like Williford's The Pickup, where the last line of it, you're like, oh, there's the whole explanation to the bitter end. I thought this is going to explain itself at the at some point you know, and it never does. And I think a lot about in this time period where you have authors like Raymond Chandler and Patricia Highsmith who are championing championing the, the next generation of what would become crime novels that would sort of leave the Agatha Christie locked room mystery behind and birth this new psychological, interior oriented, oriented crime novels. Uh, and I think this is exactly the kind of book that has reached its dead end, that that tributary is driving yes. up where yes. you can't go any further. If you try and keep pursuing that tributary of fooling audiences who have been trained to look for red herrings and fooling audience who have been trained to look for clues and put the clues together to fool them, you end up with this act of total insanity, which is this book. It's just an act of insanity. You can't go any further. And if you care about truth or honesty or anything, of course you're gonna be like Raymond Chandler and be like, no one should be writing books like this anymore. It's dead, this is horrible. This is a complete dead end, you know, if you're thinking that as an artist. And to me, one of the big tells about this book is that Rogers, Joel Townsley Rogers did not think it was an impressive book. He did not think it was the crowning achievement of his career, he was dismissive of it, right? which shows me that he didn't mean to blow people's minds. He was trying (laughs) to make a regular Agatha Christie style book and failed so spectacularly so and you know like the firework went off in his hand and you're like i can't believe that guy was crazy enough to blow up his own hand his own
0: red right hand
1: yeah he didn't mean to blow up his hand i don't think we should all
0: be we should all be so lucky to fail upwards like that
1: (laughs) yes yes but there is but i don't think that reduces the value as it's like the shags again you know where philosophy of the world on the one hand is the worst album you've ever heard but on the other hand it's an incredible experience you it's an indigestible experience it's an experience that you just have to to let soak in and i'm sure if you asked them what did you mean for this album to be their answers would be nuts because their dad was fucking nuts and made them do it essentially but same thing with with joel townsley rogers i'm sure if you sat him down and pressed him your answers would not be I was trying to drive my audience to the brink of insanity themselves by leaving them in the mind of an insane person, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, the devil's in the details in this book, you know, and I thought a lot about when it's set in 1945 and there are a lot of interesting kind of things that pop out of you when you're thinking about that. This ties into
1: my next question. Did any aspects of the plot date the story? If so, which ones?
0: There you go. It's an important question, actually. glad they included that in this helpful uh, guide. No, it's, um, it's okay. So it's a newspaper article and it is dated August 10th, right? Yeah. Wednesday, August 10th of 1945. And the, the headline is Honshu Invaded, right? Yeah. Now Honshu was the site of a Japanese airbase, which would have been part of Operation Downfall, right? Which was the plan developed near the end of World War II for the land invasion of Japan, which would have begun in November of 45. But then Hiroshima and Nagasaki made that plan unnecessary. So that's something that never happened. So already he's setting this in like the speculative future because this book came out in early 1945. It was an extension of a short story that had been published, I think a year earlier. So at the time that it came out, it was in March. Those bombings had not happened, you know, and this this idea that Hancho would be invaded eventually as an inevitability by the United, by the allied forces is something that probably was still very much in the news and people were thinking that was going to happen. So I love that. I love that it kind of ties in as another weird red herring where the relationship between St. Ermy and the mechanic in New York, at one point they say they're developing secret weapons, secret secret devices for the military together. And you're wondering, like, is this gonna go in some totally left field spy you know, plot thing. about espionage and like yeah, like that he was murdered because of this and or you know that? Yes.
1: It's what you're saying. This book, you read it and you do go, is it headed to Lovecraft territory? Is it headed to sabotage, yeah. saboteur territory? Where is this going
0: to go to this? The compass is just spinning the entire time. And I and I just love that. I love that there's no direction whatsoever to the, where this novel is going.
1: Yes. If you can't hear my voice, I have a massive amount of affection for this book, even as I am want to trash it and set it on fire and throw it against a wall i i have a huge this is a a lovable book this this is the kind of book that deserves to be a cult novel you know that is is sort of an experience that you have and then you can't wait to inflict it on somebody else
0: (laughs) and i'll uh, answer another part of the question um 1945 the, the setting you know he at one point mentions cicadas right yeah. 1945 was the singing of the cicadas in the twilight specifically 45 was a year of the cicadas, the brood two cicadas, right. And the, the, eastbound brood. So in Connecticut, the last one was 2013 cicadas definitely would have been around. So I don't know. I, you know, there's not much known about Rogers, his biography, but he must've been from Connecticut if he knew, you know, that the cicadas were around at that time. Yeah. Uh, not sure if it was Phoebe season or not. Couldn't verify <laughs>
1: that. There's also a bunch of things in this book that's like the, a Draco 34 is the kind of car where you go, is that a real kind of car? What's a real thing, you know? And also like they're there, he keeps running into timber rattlers, which are like, I, I'm thought they were extinct. I know they're a perspective species. You definitely, when you're in, uh, you know, cause John and I are from the Northeast, you don't think of running into rattlesnakes in Connecticut. It's something Did you that, look it up? No, I didn't look it up. I did. I did. Yeah.
0: They are. That's one of only two fatal reptile species in Connecticut is the,
1: they've got the Timber to be, Rattler. They've got to be on the endangered list though, right? At this
0: point, sure. The other one is the Northern Copperhead.
1: Yeah. Yes. Copperheads you would hear of, but there's all these kind of little things like that, that you're like, is that a real thing or is that made up for this story too? There's so much of it that feels almost like you're saying, almost like speculative sci-fi where it's like, are we going to walk off into some completely bizarre world with this and i think and, that and stuff that's that you yeah no go on
0: and stuff that you would wonder is this speculative stuff or is this just crazy stuff of the time that doesn't exist anymore right when they explain um he describes saint ernie's examination at the insurance company and says yeah. that they would look at his eyes uh with the ophthalmoscope at the blood vessels in the fundus trying to uh, guess their appearance how long he would live <laughs> <laughs> wow, is that a real was that a real thing at some point? Look it's, into the eyes and find out when he'll die
1: but mentioning in saint ermy who's whose terrible eyesight ends up being a big factor driving all the plot this it reminds me this this book to make this book work if you want to accept the solution it has at face value, which I think is it's it's virtually impossible to swallow but the book offers no alternate solution. The book pretends like here's the real solution, but it's so ludicrous. It's, it's hard to swallow. You've, like you say, it's you still feel like, is Dr. Riddle actually crazy and everything else is adding up to Riddle? There's so many bad mystery and crime-riding cheats. Everybody has myopia and can't see each other every coat and hat fits on somebody else perfectly who has been described already as radically physically different you know, as like a five foot three corkscrew legged man. And then the six foot tall guy puts on his pants and he's like, well, the corkscrew guy could have had long legs that he was squatting down on. You know, just (laughs) there's constantly,
0: nobody recognizes anybody. Right. Nobody knows who anybody is. And then the usual thing about, you know, this piece of information will pay off. This one won't. The Ritter thing is not going to pay off. Two Finger Pete is going to pay off, you know, in a big, big, big way. Were you paying attention to Two Finger Pete? I bet you weren't. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Any of that. The surrealist who lives next door isn't mentioned for 150 pages and then is a main character briefly for 10 and then is dead again. You know, it's, but I was going to say those bad writing cheats, the generous reading is that on purpose he's trying to further your sense of disorientation by accumulating these coincidences and the bad writing cheats, that it does make you disoriented to have so many of them in there. You you don't, they they stop feeling like cheats because there's just so many of them.
0: You yeah, know, but, there's but just, that, yeah. yeah. But that ending where he's putting everything together is like Charlie Kelly with his, you know, board in the mail room, you know, connecting all the insane things. Or if I'm being literary, it's like Pale Fire where this yes. guy is making these insane connections to his own life that don't exist. Um, and I think killing the surrealist and making all those jokes about, well, he was thinking about this situation, he might be useful because he'll think about the situation surrealistically, you know, all these funny jabs at this artist character. Once they kill that guy, and the surrealism has to die, and he has to like settle down and say, okay, I guess here's the solution to this whole thing, it just makes me convinced that like there's just a humor to this thing that is completely intentional. I got a few, I got to point out just a few of those moments of humor that I love in this book too. I mean, this is a book that foils the villain by slipping on a banana peel. So it's crazy. He's it's crazy. Fun shit. Uh, there's trooper stone who doesn't die from being struck because he's made of stone, right? His name is stone. <laughs> um, there's the great paragraph that describes the patrolman who nods at them as they are heading off from the bank. And then he says he had his duty. Couldn't go with them. Even if they'd asked him to come along. Why would they ask him to come along? (laughs) Well, that's what I love about the
1: stone because it keeps setting up like miniature mysteries that need to be solved. Like I'm here at the house. Where is Stone? He's supposed to be watching the bride to be who's asleep on the couch. Why did he leave? Well, I guess if somebody came and knocked on his window and pretended there was official business for him to do and asked him to slip out of the window, that person then could have hit him with a rock. Yes, especially
0: pocket narratives the entire time. Absolutely.
1: But it's like, but if you sit and look at it and you're like, so the killer knocked on the window, imitated Dr. Riddle's voice and the trooper went out the window to avoid waking the woman he's assigned to protect. <laughs> think of, Just think about what you're asking me to believe happened, which is that a trooper slipped out the window. It, it's just the, the image of it is ludicrous. The masked voice of it is ludicrous. All <laughs> of li- it.
0: Yeah, the ludicrous stuff, remind, you know what reminds me the most of is a classic Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode that's what it reminds me of and people who in reviews complain about the red herring that like i knew that that was bullshit all along or whatever those are the kind of people who would complain that the continuity of the simpsons doesn't follow after the episodes of treehouse of horror why is Keeper willie still alive i don't get it you know like yeah it's like it's something that is outlier from all that that is you know placed outside of that stuff and that is why i believe it's It's got to be at least somewhat intentional, even John, if it comes off somewhat messy. Uh,
1: aside, putting the solution to the mystery aside, forget about that now. Did sure. anything about the book surprise you? If so,
0: what? <laughs> no, no, pretty straightforward stuff. I mean, like, yeah, of course. It's surprising from beginning to end. It's surprising, but
1: it's also punishingly repetitive. It's a yes. book that is nothing but surprises, but also is no surprises. That's the strangest thing about the tone is that your your footing is so completely firm and it introduces no information except for radical new information that changes everything. You know what I mean? Like it's either telling you what you know over and over and over, then suddenly telling you that the entire world is different than you thought. You know, it's doing that over and over where it's just... Here's what you know, here's what you know, here's what you know, here's what you know. Here's a tiny piece of information that makes everything that you know completely invalid and sends everything off in a different direction. Here's what you know, here's what you know, here's what you know. Here's a piece of information that turns the entire world upside down again. And that's its tone, but with no sort of differentiation of tone or rhythm of pace or emphasis between the important world shattering parts and the unimportant non-world shattering parts.
0: You know? lieutenant rosenblatt in this book where everything is all the details are there they're all like put right in front of you and they are (laughs) mind-boggling
1: yeah and it's and it feels that's another reason it feels like a rough draft to me where he isn't he's both hiding the secrets too well and not hiding them enough it feels like here's it here's the bottleneck here's the choke point And it just hits it all of a sudden rather than making the bottle the entire width. You know what I mean? So you're not hitting these choke points and then it goes back to the other width. You know, theoretically, you would make the whole bottle the same width. So it's not constant choke points or you would deliberately build to a choke point that changes everything. Instead, it feels like there's three little choke points in a row on a bottle, and then it goes back to normal width. You know what I mean? It yes. just feels like a very strange rhythm to it. Okay. I'll tell
0: you my, my favorite and I think most telling description too of Corkscrew by uh, Henry Riddle is that there's nothing in the picture of him to indicate that he was a man who would not like ice cream. <laughs>
1: I'm going to skip two questions that are not super interesting to me, and jump to: If you were one of the main characters, would you have acted differently at any point in the story?
0: <laughs> well, I think if I was Mr. Quel- uh, Quelch, is that how we say it?
1: <laughs> yes, not Mr. Quelch, Quelch, Mr. Quelch. And Mr. I knew Quelch. I knew it wasn't Quelch calling out, but somebody imitating his voice because he
0: would have called himself
1: Mr. Quelch.
0: Well, he is a 1910-style lady killer, so
1: <laughs> you know the uh, type. They joke and joke and joke <laughs> till the women want them to leave. Lady killer, 19 till style.
0: If our Mr. I certainly wouldn't have brought a, uh, a piece of mail to deliver during a murder investigation, he deserved to get yelled at. But anyway. Wait, uh, wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. You know why this old Macomero, this man pretending to be old Macomero, didn't want to sign for the letter? Because he hasn't nailed old Macomero's signature yet. Oh, right, my yeah, God. Why didn't that. I put it together? <laughs> not leave me alone it's a murder How did investigation
0: you? how'd you miss that one chris but i love i love old man i love mr quelch he's like a parody of an expert witness the way he quotes exact times he's like oh yes i remember last wednesday it was 7 10 p.m and you were you know coming up the road that's all his character does is like <laughs> know these exact things until of course he gets yelled at by um ah, McCam- mccamaru old mccamaru and uh and suddenly he can't even form words he's so upset yeah you're clabbering jabber clabber john jump
1: he turns into that guy i don't believe it yeah (laughs) but if you were mr quelch would you have acted differently at any point in the story
0: i told you i wouldn't have brought that letter
1: what if what if what if you were corkscrew i think corkscrew doesn't exist didn't you read the explanation
0: (laughs) I think if I were corkscrew, that I would definitely. If I corkscrew, I would definitely start peeping at women from buildings in secure buildings in New York, and not from, you know, little hills. You're still uh,
1: you're still believing the fake story. Corkscrew is some guy who didn't kill a kitten. (laughs) I don't know
0: what to believe. It's that's the point I'm trying to make. He's, I, I, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be peeping women at Dead Bridegroom's Pond. Did
1: you, did you identify with any of the characters? If so, who?
0: Let me ask you that question, Chris.
1: It's impossible to identify with these insane non-characters. Everyone is written like an utter goddamn lunatic. To call these people characters is almost, it's, 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 it's a travesty of the, of the word literary character. They are are a collection of strange narrative artifacts. Everybody in this book is a collection of narrative artifice. Every single thing that happens in this book is a collection of narrative artificiality, which is why it's plays like The thing being constructed that the story is being constructed in the mind of a raving lunatic because it has a crazy person's sense of trying to make sense of nonsensical details and forcing everything into a story that is a false story in some way. That is a story that can't be credibly believed in any way. Uh, Nobody believes and behaves in a believable way for one second. Nobody behaves like a human being. Everyone exists to serve this utterly ludicrous narrative and i mean ludicrous in the best way and this book is truly ludicrous this book is whatever you think is weird this book is weirder than it you know this whatever you've set down as being a weird thing this is a weirder reading experience and and like you say the comedy too makes it such an off kilter thing too delightfully so though yeah
0: I would say I identify with the real victims of this novel, who are the animals: rattlesnake who gets his head crushed, kitten who corkscrew finds dead on the road, Bobby the Saint Bernard who gets run over by the car. Which, you know, I guess he didn't get around to, you know, pointing out that that the Saint Bernard was a different dog or something like that in his crazy his crazy solution at the end. Thing. Well, God. it's that's one of the, that is the most ludicrous
1: uh, of the narrative coincidences designed to make you think Dr. Harry Riddle is the killer and is hallucinating some way and has a Jekyll Hyde personality at one point because it jumps around in time just back and forth through time constantly we're rarely in the now it's constantly relating stories that he's heard information that he's pieced together theories that he has at one point Dr. Harry Riddle drives the exact route that the killer has driven where the killer stops and kills uh, old flail kills Mr. Old Flail, kills him with a rock. And he drives by there by his own admission. Then he drives by the house where the kids are in the yard and everybody's crying because the killer has just run over the St. Bernard. And as he slows down, the dad is like, you get out of here, you monster, to Dr. Harry Riddle. And he reacts in a weird way. And then he shows up at Old Macomero's house where surely the killer must have driven by as well and gone to Right. So he drives. Oh, and he does. He drives through the uh, cul-de-sac drive around at the Surrealist house and drives by and runs over some of his paintings, which we know that the killer has driven through the little turnaround D-shaped turnaround in the Surrealist uh, driveway and run over some paintings. So he literally, after he's told you the killer has done this exact route and done these things, he describes that he's driven (laughs) this exact route and done these things. And everyone has reacted to him as though he's the killer, including the surrealist, Unisarte, what is his name? Who fires a shotgun at him for some reason.
0: And what's the dance that Gregory Unisarte does? Do you remember?
1: I don't remember. I just remember he's wearing a feather duster on his head and a purple nightgown.
0: It's the beautiful dance of the corkscrew in the bottle.
1: Oh my God.
0: It's just. <laughs> he had nothing on his mind. Nothing whatsoever.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and it's just that kind of coincidence is you you don't, you're not fooling an audience when you mislead them that deliberately. You know what I mean? It's you're, you're not actually misleading them in some way. It's, it's a weird thing. I'm not a big fan of mystery novels because I never find the solutions satisfying because there's always a hundred solutions that are equally viable. You know what I mean? And it's like, no, 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 it was this one. If you had just read more closely, you would have got it. And it's like, no, it's just all made up. You know, it's, and I don't, you know, there's no satisfaction in solving a made up mystery, especially when they're trying to fool you in some way. So then you just look for what are the ways in which I'm being fooled? you know and
0: that's, that's why this thing seems like such a fuck you to all of those books where they yeah. say oh the, the 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 victim is actually alive he's actually the murderer who is actually a different guy who is actually posing as a diff- as a third guy who has been with us the entire time is just like literally on drugs you know <laughs> you know yeah. a non-drug solution but pick any of them pick any of the like before he even starts adding levels and levels to it by saying you know, he's Dexter, he's the right hand <laughs> and things like that. Even before then, you could just say, well, that would have been a you know solution to the book just to say it was St. Ermy all along before saying, also, he's the mechanic, he's Dexter back in New York. Also, he's, he's McAmaroo. He was took his identity.
1: And he doesn't have any money and he was in fact stealing the life savings account of the woman who believed he was rich, but she actually had money. She wasn't destitute. She had a small savings which is again it's that's withholding narrative information you know which is you can do that very easily you can just lie about your characters and fool an audience it's not hard to lie to their face constantly um and i would also say that this book sort of has the the disease of knowing that the audience is going to be looking for the ways in which they're being misled they're going to be looking for the ways in which they're being misdirected. They're staring directly at the magician's hands as the magician is doing the trick. So I'm going to put the misdirections are a misdirection, but once you start misdirecting from the misdirections, you've moved so far away from the verifiable reality of anything. And into the world of such incredible coincidence and requiring such narrative jiggering. And I would say that this movie, that this book has misdirections on top of the misdirections, on top of the misdirections. When you're reaching that point, there's nothing to do but just make up the most ludicrous shit imaginable, you know?
0: Yeah, but even just the setting of this and saying, you know, well, is Operation Downfall happening right now? John, what role did the setting play in the narrative? Is Spartersburg supposed to be a real place? Even everything like that is like, what am I supposed to rely on here? You did mention Virgil Parch. I know he was an actual cartoonist for The New Yorker. That's real. But, you know, other things like that. Was are there rattlesnakes it? in Connecticut? I don't know. I have to look it up.
1: Did Ennis St. Ermy say he was going to John Buchanan's and he was working at John Buchanan's at the same time and they met on the same road? Or is that, it's just, it's, what are you what are you trying to tell me book? You know, it's, <laughs> it's trying to outsmart an audience. And I think I, I don't would know if
0: it's about outsmarting the audience though. I think it's
1: not, not make it so the audience can't predict what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's not a difficult thing to do. I, I'm, I'm never impressed by the, the narrative trick of mysteries, because it's easy to just withhold every bit of information you need from an audience for it to make sense. And that's why I compare it to the pickup where when you read the pickup, right, it has the famous final line. There's a lot of things that happen in the pickup and you're like, huh, that's strange. I wonder what that means but you don't put it together, but it leaves these lingering questions in your head that, that don't necessarily form into full thoughts. And then when you get to the last line, you're like, oh, everything makes sense now. Every question I had about unreasonable reactions of other characters or strange moments and strange narrative hiccups, it makes it all make sense. That is impossible with this book. You know, there was never anything that will make sense of all of this other than the one he doesn't want to do, which is that this is the ravings of a lunatic, this book.
0: You know, you other, know? Th- other than simply the tone that he establishes in this book, the long sequence where the doc is on the swamp road after his car breaks down and has that sense, that ominous sense that, there's, that he's somehow connected or close to the killer or there's something going on he's seeing specters on the road and things like that yeah we don't know you know it's he's it's accused of seeing a ghost up. at one point <laughs> right it's perfectly set up in a way that's like what the fuck is going on but you feel that sense of anxiety that he's feeling and then later on when they do you know double back and say well you know when he went down there with uh McComero and and had had picked up that stone because he was going to kill the rattlesnake he was really going to kill him because McCamero is the, the villain all along. So naturally, you know, you're close to this danger the entire time. But what you're experiencing throughout the book before you know, any of this stuff is simply that like something really fucking weird is going on and he does a really great job. Yeah. setting that kind of stuff up every single time.
1: Well, you have a sense, you know, you're being lied to the whole time. This yeah. is book very much with a sense that you're being lied to and it's either townsley rogers who's lying or it's dr harry riddle who's lying so when riddle isn't lying i was left with a big sense of this is why i was like this is the worst book i've ever read is it such brazen bald-faced lying to your face you know it's it's sort of beyond unreliable narrator stuff Mm -hmm. to to a degree that you feel like you've just spent all of these you know 230 pages with a liar who's just lying to your face the whole time you know, but that's actually, that's actually a great fucking thing to have exist. <laughs> you know, I don't want to praise the book, but I also love it. You know, like I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be seduced by it. I don't want to fall into the, it's not, I'm not going to listen to L. Ron Hubbard at all, but I'm very impressed by Scientology. You well, know, I, it's that kind <laughs> of.
0: Well, I'd also throw out this quote at you, which I think is a fantastic quote from the book. In part, I think it was due to a general feeling I have that authors and their books are separate things. And that if a man has written a great book, the best of him is in it. An author and his book are no more identical than a father and his child or a man and his wife. They're related and they have a similarity in various ways. But you can like one without liking the other. They are not the same.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So don't go, don't go too hard on old uh, Joel Tows- Townsley, you know? No, I, I really it think makes, it makes there me is like a him a lot. Possibility that he wrote a great book by mistake, you know, or didn't, but it just seems like there's so much great stuff in this that I can't imagine that. It seems
1: like he's trying, it's, it's like the, the Apogee of a form that's completely exhausted. You know what I mean? Yes. That that this is not the supernova of the genre. This is the collapsed black hole of the genre. This is not as good as it gets. This is like a gravitational black hole of the mystery novel. That this I agree is with this you. is like this is mystery novel antimatter is what this book is.
0: Yeah, there's also a part the end of Neil Simon's um, Murder by Death where all the detectives have a different solution to the mystery and they all kind of like show up and like, you're wrong. This is what really happened. And there are like five different explanations. And then, you know, if I, they, they find that they've all been duped. And the, the, the guy who, you know, set them all up says you're in your books, you know, you always identify, you always bring up characters at the end who we didn't even know about. And you did this and you did that. And he's like, you know, accusing everyone of, you know, the, the Christie character and the, um, the, the Chandler character and everything like that of, you know, having these unfair things in their books and the end of this feels a lot like that too, where it's, you know, well, whatever, you know, these books, what are you going to do? I'm just going to have the most insane explanation I can. That makes me sound like a raving maniac because they're really, you know, it could be anything, pick, you know, pick one.
1: It does. It does feel like the, the, especially towards the end reading this book becomes like trying to keep up with the ravings of a lunatic the last 30 pages you you really i've read it feeling like when is when is the other shoe going to drop when is this thing going to drop its mask of total ludicrousness and explain itself and it doesn't it's like sitting uh and listening to a guy on the subway and be like trying to take seriously you're saying the tv is beaming thoughts into your head Let's work through this. And you listen, you listen, and you listen, you're like, okay, we'll get to how the TV's beaming thoughts into your head. And at a certain point you go, oh, the TV isn't beaming thoughts into his head. I've wasted my entire subway trip trying to take this seriously. You know, it has that quality to it. Yeah. Or um, Poppy
0: try and understand the guy under the bridge and happy go lucky.
1: The rubber knocker man. Yeah. Um, John, did anything strike you about the form of the narrative?
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. They left out the "if so, what" that's at the end of all of the others. Did this novel remind you of anything else you've read? That's actually a good and interesting question here. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, no, it did not.
1: <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't remind you of like Thompson's "After Dark, My Sweet," where the entire story is driven by the gap between the main character's understanding of the world and the reality. It has that feel of the of the reality gap of being trapped in the first person like in any Thompson novel or certainly a lot of them, not any of them, but certainly Pop Pop uh, 1280 or
0: Killer Thompson and Thompson novels are too grounded though, you know?
1: But you know there's a separation between the character. The what
0: perspective that you're in and then, it, yeah, what's And action. the reality. You know yeah, there's of course. a gap. Of co- yeah, well, sure. Well, yeah, like anything or like any stream of consciousness novel that we were talking about. There's going to be that thing where you're just like, I am kind of on this roller coaster that I can't get off of, or you know, merry ground, whatever you want to, you know, whatever analogy you want to make, you're just you're trapped in this person's mind and you can't get out of it. And certainly you well, have no, no idea no, if no, he's no. describing things that are actually happening.
1: Well, that's what I mean is that the mystery of Thompson's books is a lot of those books, is what is the reality versus what this character is telling me? More unreliable narrator than stream of consciousness. This book acts like an unreliable narrator book who turns out to be a completely credible and reliable narrator, which is what's so disorienting about it, is that it's what if after Dark My sweet, the main character were just right about everything, or if in Killer Inside Me, the main character weren't lying at all about anything. Those would be, those would be very <laughs> unsatisfying experiences as books, this this movie sort of stakes its claim on I'm going to make you feel like you're being lied to, and then insist it's been the truth all along, which is a which is a very a very strange feeling. It's a very you know, strange feeling. Yeah. You
0: know. But when he's insisting that you know, it's been the truth all along, it's still completely unreliable. I mean, I think that's what kind of distances this from other things where they you know they the author brings it around and says okay, and as you say, takes takes the mask off. This one is. I guess, simpatico with the box man in that it doesn't ever take the mask off. It only kind of has a pretense of taking the mask off and explaining everything and it being completely satisfying ending where it's gloriously unsatisfying. I read, I mean, when I first read this book, I read the last 30 pages three times, just looking for that moment where we are going to have reality and perspective kind of sync up the way that they usually do in these kind of books. And it never does.
1: Yeah, that last 30 pages, it's so jumbled and so nonsensical and so out of left field that you read it and you don't feel like you're being told, okay, here's the solution now. And it doesn't make any sense. And even when you read it, there's so much new information and new theories That you don't even read it with a critical mind. You don't read it about how it's so impossible, like in a normal detective novel, where you just go like, "But how would he have bullets or whatever?" You know, just like the the plot holes that sink a lot of clever solutions. You know, where you get to the twist ending in Sixth Sense, and if you think about it, you go, "Well, that only works if we come into these scenes late and we don't see Bruce Willis interacting with anyone but the kid." you know, the the twist only works by sort of the cheats of it, you know, Mm -hmm. this, you don't even read this last 30 pages, like trying to gauge its plausibility because it never feels plausible for one second.
0: That's exactly it. Yes. It never, it never feels possible. That's the beauty of this book. I think, you know, and I guess all you can really do is, you know, debate whether or not he had this specific idea in mind that he knew this was a culmination that this was like the the cul-de-sac of mystery novels where you know there's just not going to just going to circle around and there's not going to be a solution at all and you're just sitting there wondering where's that car that i was supposed to see it doesn't make sense when i go back and look at it this is this is this line
1: that i think of that i wrote down when when you have this line coming out of the character who's not your unreliable narrator, but is your reliable narrator, I feel like gives you a sense of how uh, just tonally airsets this fucking thing is. So they're talking about being doctors and looking at a dead body, right? And judging this dead body as doctors on whether the mutilation done to the body was done by a surgeon or done sloppily how it was done. And Harry Riddle says this and almost any man knows of his own experience that ordinarily a man has two hands, but St. Ermy only had one. His right hand bed had been cut off at the wrist, which was what had got me down even more than those other things. The other things being it's mutilated face, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the guy who's right and telling you the truth. Those, those statements are such insipid, strange, unrealistic, stilted writing, trying to point you in other directions, trying to misdirect the audience, try to deceive them in some way, combined with a flatness of affect and tone and, uh, and insipid. The writing is very, very insipid in this book, Right it's just you feel like your mind is being broken by this book you really just this this is like a brain breaker
0: yeah because when you go back and
1: you're like wait that's the not crazy guy who said any almost any man knows of his own experience that ordinarily a man has two hands like that's the not crazy person
0: (laughs) i think yeah and i think that that what he was going for, I got to throw another quote out at, at you. I think the whole thing can be distilled to this sentence. A man has to go along a nightmare road with a splitting skull to appreciate all the meaning of a phone. And the context of that quote is that once he's gone down this ominous road where he's positive that something is going to kill him and he sees Makamaru's house and knows that he can you know, be connected to reality again, specifically to other people and reach out and be part of the world again, it's a relief. But this book never gets to the phone. I yeah. think you're just down this nightmare road with the splitting skull the entire time.
1: <laughs> and there's and it should also be emphasized, there's so many murders in this book. It's not just the initial murder. They just keep piling up improbable murders. He kills old Macomero. Now that I'm going through it is, who, does, who actually gets killed in the saw pits now? You can't put any of this together. And Unisarte gets killed and Stone almost gets killed and uh, Old Flail gets killed. People just keep getting killed throughout it at, at random, like supernaturally so. It has like a diabolical supernatural quality to it.
0: Yeah, some people who you think are dead are not actually dead. And some people you're worried are dead because they never tell us they're alive. Eleanor napping on the couch who never gets up from the couch the whole time the doctor's there. I kept thinking, oh, she's fucking dead, right? she's been killed and he's just not telling us i mean there's just like murder just seeps through this book before he goes into the whole improbable solution you really get the sense of like the world is ending everyone is being fucking killed because at that point he suspects that mr Quelch has died he suspects that rosenblatt has been killed he thinks everybody's dead except for him. the most the most
1: tasteless red herring And now that I'm thinking about it is when Dr. Riddle is looking at Eleanor passed out on the couch and you're really supposed to believe he's the Jekyll Hyde MD who's committing all these killings unwittingly and has two separate personalities, right? We should explain that's what it points you towards constantly. These coincidences are not coincidences. He's the killer and he's not aware of it, right? He has this line about he's looking at her asleep on the couch and he's like, I'm sure when she wakes up, I'm going to get to have her too. Right. He's like, I'm going to get to fuck this lady. And that's when you're like, oh, my God, he's this monster rapist creep. Right. If he's not the killer later on, he's like, he's thinking casually about sleeping with the woman whose bridegroom was just murdered. And he thinks that's actually going to happen. And in one of the last pages, he's like, and it wasn't in the cards. We didn't hook up. And you're like, yeah, of course not. You're not a monster. You're not you're not Corkscrew the insane tramp dog murdering killer man.
0: Unless he is. I have to ask you a question. I doubt it's on that page that you're looking at. You ready? Yes. How much do crazy little hats cost? <laughs> I
1: don't know cuz I'm a rich guy. <laughs> I'm a rich guy. You probably
0: never had to use a ration book, have you?
1: I've you're never had rich, to use a ration bastard. book bastard. But I'm not a St. isn't a name. It's Sinister Me with an extra S.
0: <laughs> the extra, extra S either standing for Seminole or what's the other one? Uh, Sachin. <laughs> it's crazy. It reminds it me of the, anything. of the
1: great joke in War and Peace where he's trying to uh, get the uh, the emperor's name, the letters to work out like cryptographically. And he has to like put a an unnecessary L apostrophe on it to get like his cryptograph to work to get the secret message and numerology to work. It reminds me of that, <laughs> but it is funny too, where you're like in a saint Ermy, that's not a name. like why did you name your character in a Saint Ermy?
0: <laughs> well, it does go out of his way to explain that he changed his name, so
1: yeah, goes out of his way to explain great explanation. <laughs> uh john let me ask you this do do you like this book
0: i love this book yeah i do this, this this book like you said is something that you want to throw against the wall at some points but you get caught in its web and it's just great i i have i think i think maybe lansdale somebody mentions don't read this book when you're tired and i couldn't agree more like if you were you're cranky and you're tired and you start reading this book you're going to be like what the fuck just want to like tear its peaches out i think i'm a Definitely slow this, i'm a slow patience. reader to begin with
1: and this took me forever to read i constantly had to set it down and pick it back up and reread what i had written which is worse too because it is so punishingly repetitive especially in the first half that that it was such a it was such a slow read this is such a slow read. But like I say, it's funny, if you read As I Lay Dying first, you can see maybe a little of what he was going for, but you can also remember like, oh, no, that's what good writing is. And I think that it's an important distinction, while I praise this book to emphasize that I really think this book is an act of idiocy, That's really my opinion on it, that it was it was homework handed in too early with some joke answers written in. You know, it was it was the homework done that morning before class, and he didn't know what to put in that one. So he put a banana peel in that one answer, right? Yeah, sure. And it's and it's it's just it's it's really something, man. This book is really something. (laughs) It is not nothing.
0: Before we we finish up, I just got to throw out one or two more quotes that I love from this book. Uh, The reference to boys and boy-witted men. I'm going to start calling people (laughs) boy-witted men all the time now. Um, It's often said that dogs, children, and lunatics have an infallible instinct for character.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and this is when the dog is bothering him. And there's like another line immediately like, so I don't know why this dog was bothering me. I'm definitely not the insane Jekyll Hyde M.D. Why is this
0: dog trying to kill me? It's not like I'm the murderer or anything right, everybody.
1: <laughs> and that's the route, that's right. the things pointing towards him being a lunatic are so obvious that you can't that you can't you're you have a sensation of, is he trying to fool us with this because this stuff is so obvious. Um, and then when it's not that, no, he's not trying to fool you with that. That's all red herrings. All of that stuff just becomes all the more profoundly weird that it's his hat that was put in the Salvation Army that the killer picked up and I guess cut it up with a sawtooth and the scallops and poked holes in it, which is something that boys and boy would men do. That's the context of that <laughs> of that quote, by the way. Yes. Uh, that you just you just go, why have it be his hat, I just, that, did, that didn't happen. You know, that's, that's my reaction to a lot of it when you get to the end of, that that didn't happen. None of this happened. If you, you expect me to believe this happened, I can't believe a single piece of this. Never has a narrative been more artificial than in this book. Not even in the yeah. most plastic, intentionally postmodern Godard films has a narrative been this artificial. Not even in in the most uh, winkingly deconstructionist narratives has a has a book been as artificial as this.
0: I would challenge anyone to find one. Absolutely, it's something that should be read by people. Do you agree with me on that?
1: Yes, I feel like it should be. I want to. It's like a prank. I want to inflict it on my friends and enemies and everyone. It's a book I'm, I'm interested in inflicting on people to see what their reaction is.
0: Um, only in New York, not in Spartansburg.
1: This mean, is Sparta'sburg. I just, I don't, I don't know. I'm curious to hear too, do people read this and say, that's a really satisfying mystery. I like this book on the level it's being given to me. I feel like the schism be- between what this book kind of, straight-facedly tells you what it is and what it actually is is so wide this book is a jim thompson character that's what this book is this book is the psychology of this book is a jim thompson character
0: it does have a little bit in common with the nowhere uh, the nowhere man the nothing man yeah yeah
1: what are your what are your not multiple what is your dessert pairing for this lovely work of sheer <laughs> lunacy.
0: So it's funny, you know, because you've kind of stacked it up unfairly to the box man and to Faulkner and things that obviously it's not going to
1: I'm gonna hold up against.
0: The... Uh, yeah, gonna I'm going to nail it with another one too. I'm going to, I'm going to be soft on it and say, going back even further, you've got uh, another cult author, Harry Stephen Keeler, who had a web work novel technique where, he would just throw any goddamn thing in there that he wanted. Like it's the fun of it is that someone's just going to show up or some event's going to happen that you it's just completely out of left field. And it's going to completely surprise you. And that's where the fun is. You know, it's not well-constructed writing. It's not even that good writing. Uh, but if you take a novel like the riddle of the traveling skull, which is another, you know, body part that's gone yeah. missing narrative, you're going to have a good time with it because you just want to know what's going to happen on the next page. You know, there's always yeah. going to be a surprise waiting for you. And I don't know if uh, Townsley Rogers was familiar with Keeler's work. He wasn't very well known at the time, but it definitely has that same kind of flavor. So I would say I would throw that out there. and also throw out because I don't think it's an influence at all, but you know, classic short story in the Grove. Um, yeah. By Tagawa, which was the basis for Ra- Rashomon obviously the idea of like who's telling the truth here what am i supposed to believe and at the end you still don't think you have that solution to kind of just give it like a more highbrow sort of comparison i would say it's on the you know it's it's in the it's like in the grove in that in that way yeah. so those would be some of the ones i have memories of murder tonally has a lot to go to compare it to as well and just in terms of the the murderer who is could be anyone and is never really never really tangible ever in that story. The uh, Bong Joon-ho film, Memories of Murder, the excellent Bong Joon-ho film. Yes.
1: Even as you're told the solution in this book, the murderer is never tangible. That's one of the strangest things about this book is Mm. that the the murderer never becomes tangible in it, which is why it still feels like the ravings of a
0: lunatic. And we still never know why Corkscore knows uh, that line uh, that uh, Catulus tells to Lesbia, right? (laughs) the the latin that he that he's able to cuz he's
1: book. doc he's one of the many docs of the book <laughs> who and some of them will fight you if you call them professor my dessert pairing is nabokov's laughter in the dark yeah. to pair with this uh I and i picked it because it's probably nabokov's um pulpiest book it's about an art critic who marries a young woman who wants to be an actress and gets with him because he's wealthy and can parlay his influence in the art world uh, into an acting career. And she is cheating on him with a young man uh, who is a fixture in their life because they've convinced this art critic that the young man is gay. So he's always hanging around. And it's, it's very pulpy. It's about jealousy and murder plots and at one point the main character gets blinded so for the last uh chunk of the novel uh he's just listening to things and being lied to by the woman and the doctor which he doesn't realize is actually the young man she's having an affair with pretending to be somebody else but it is uh it's famously um sort of a dry run for lolita in terms of a a man who's romanticizing a very uh dumb and crass and selfish young woman, uh, who is taking advantage of him materially. And he's got this very romantic view of his, um, lust of his pedophilic lust for this young woman that he is justifying to himself in very romantic terms and not seeing how he's being exploited. Um, although that all makes it sound like, uh, like, like victim-blaming-y. E. is definitely not how it is. I just mean as a description of their personality uh, that he's clearly uh, the monster who's hiding his monstrousness under his own self-image, right? In both of them. Or the, the fool and the creep, not even the monster, the gross creep who's hiding his real self uh, under his, his high regard for himself and romantic language and all of that. Uh, and you have, he's focusing it all on a person who, uh, whose sort of crudeness and, and transactional nature of their relationship uh, reveals just how ludicrous his romantic ideal is. Their uh, humanity is at odds with his romantic ideals, but it's also an unreliable narrator book. And it's also a book that builds a very, satisfying but improbable pulpy mystery around uh, I think a lot of the same um, ideas if you were going to talk about themes in red right hand which I think is difficult because I do feel like the book is such a random unintentional explosion that I'm hesitant to read themes into it but I do think that if you were going to talk thematically uh, about them they are about somebody who's really bad at piecing a mystery together and that's sort of the mystery happening around them right in front of their face they're not getting it uh and and that they're overlooking the obvious solutions to questions that are lurking around in the back of their mind
0: excellent very good comparison any last thoughts on this book before we wrap things up i'm gonna play us out with another quote from the book if I can
1: go for it well I would like to say before the episode is over to thank all of our patreon subscribers uh and that it's really just can't say enough that we couldn't do the show without you if you don't subscribe to our patreon you should you get early access to every episode uh you get things like martin kessler's book on apocalypto john's audio commentary for i'm dangerous tonight special podcast episodes that are always behind the patreon paywall including our five from the fire series which has featured guests like bill tech and jeremy workman screenwriter tom Vaughn, uh critics martin penn martin critics marcus penn and Tamson cleary and just a lot of great stuff for our Patreons. There's at least one Patreon exclusive a month, and then early access to every single episode. And so uh, we want to thank all of our subscribers and encourage you to scri- and encourage you to subscribe if you don't, because it really uh, allows us to pay our writers on the site and continue doing what we're doing.
0: I must set the facts down for examination in the method of a case history, preliminary to a surgical diagnosis. It is a tedious process, but it is the only conclusive way. A thousand bright formless intuitions may go rushing through a man's mind as quick as lightning, if you will let them. And each may seem to flash with blinding brilliance for an instant. Yet they leave no definite shape behind them when they have faded out. And there is only the dark again, a little deeper than it was before. Facts which are set down on paper, however, have substance and they have shape. They can be measured and compared. They can all be added up.
1: Untrue.